I'd like to invite forward this morning our, our uh, special guest preacher, Reverend Dr. Courtney Bugs, if you would come up, please. And I'd like to say just a few words about her before uh, we get blessed with a message from God this morning. Uh, Reverend Dr. Courtney Bugs is assistant professor of homiletics and the assistant director of the PhD program in African-American preaching and sacred Christian rhetoric at Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis, Indiana. Her connection to Pastor Brian is that Pastor Brian did his theological training at CTS, and he wanted someone from his faith community uh, in theological training to come and represent him this week. Um, Dr. Bugs, I really love this, uh, her research interests center on ecumenical practices of sacred proclamation both inside and outside the pulpit, womanism, right, womanism, it's a good thing, <laughs> and liberative teaching practices. I already like her. She is ordained in the American Baptist tradition and has served congregations in the United States abroad and in several congregations, several denominations. Dr. Bugs also uh, was an Air Force mission crew commander retiring from the Air Force after almost 22 years of service as an officer. And she is ordained, I don't know, did I say this? Yes, I did. Um, and she has been at CTS since 2019. So I'd just like all of you, if you would please, give a warm clay welcome to Dr. Bugs this morning. Thank you. Good morning. It is good for me to be here with you today. I love being in the house of worship, and it is my first time in South Bend. It is my first time this far north, and uh, <laughs> it's colder than I expected. And <laughs> but uh, thankfully, I did bring a coat that just kind of lives in the car. So I'm just, just really pleased to be here with you this morning. I want to say thank you to uh, Pastor Brian first, who even in his absence, who reached out to me last fall and just invited me to be to come and be a part of your congregation for a day. And also to all of those who have been just so gracious in from the time that he connected me to those who would serve in his stead, who have just been so amazing. I don't know where Debbie is. Um, I did meet Debbie somewhere this morning. And um, there she is. And I just have to say, you know, there, there are people who I connect with really well, and it's the people who give me, like, lots of details before I ask for them. And this would be Debbie. This would be my experience. <laughs> so I want to say thank you publicly to, for uh, she and Aaron. I didn't get to meet Aaron, but Aaron also just helping make sure I knew whatever I needed to know before I came and this, this always means a lot to me. I also want to say to all of those who work in hospitality that um, your warmth is felt even before I arrived. And I take the time to say these things because they're important. It's important to say thank you when people make you feel warm and welcome because I travel a lot and it's not always like that. I said to Pastor Kathy this morning, we may all be believers, but all things are not equal. 
And uh, uh, Maya Angelou once said that people may not remember everything you say, but they will remember how you make them feel. And I will remember how I felt even before I got here. And then the final thank you I want to say is to the just wonderful, blessed prayer shawl ministry. Um, I received one of the prayer shawls, and I, I just have to tell you, I have wanted a prayer shawl for years. I have seen them as I've come in and out of congregations, and that just, wow, that just really touched me. So to those who may be part of that ministry, I just want you to know that um, if, if it hasn't been said recently, you have blessed me, and um, I'm so appreciative for that. So I want to get to the word today. Um, our scripture is coming from John 7, 53 through 8, 11. 7, 53 through 8, 11. And I will read that for you. I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV. And the scripture says, Then each of them went home while Jesus went on to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? This they said to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin to be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where? are they? Has anyone condemned you? She said to him, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. I want to preach for a few minutes this morning from the subject or the theme, an instrumental interruption. An instrumental interruption. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you right now for all that you have done in our worship experience this morning. And now, God, we pray that you would give us the ears that will hear, give us a heart that is open, give us a mind that will think through your word. Draw us in, draw us close. Let us hear what you say to the church. In Christ's name I pray, amen. An instrumental interruption. 
It seems most fitting as I begin this text that we note that this particular passage is not found in most of the earliest manuscripts. It's one of those portions of scripture that appears as an insertion, an inconvenient assertion, some might say. It is said to have been added in the second or third century. Some of the early manuscripts included all of these verses, or some included only some of these verses. Some uh, place this particular passage after John 7.36 in, in other manuscripts is placed in Luke 21. As we note the placement of the text in our modern day Bibles, it seems to be an interruption of an interrogation of Jesus. Before the text, we have Jesus. Jesus is in the temple and the people are divided over who Jesus is. And then after this particular pericope, we see Jesus continues testifying of himself. He is the light. I am the way. I am the one who is and was and is to come. Jesus says, I am my own witness. I am who I say I am. And here in the middle of these two bookend discussions, we find this interruption, this insertion, this excursion, this narrative that doesn't really fit. But because of its potency, it lives in our Christian imaginations. In several Bible translations, the header for this section is the adulterous woman or the woman caught in adultery. One of the problems that I suggest to you this morning with this labeling is that it leads the reader to a presupposition of the text before we've even read it. Not only that, but it causes the reader to see an adulterer before they can see a woman. Adjectives and descriptors especially negative ones, have a tendency to influence our experience of a person before we've actually encountered them. Some of us know what it's like when others draw conclusions about us before they've even met us based on one word. One word can shift our perception. One word has the potential to conjure or, or animate our imagination for good or ill. We live in a world of one words that have the potential to shift our imagination. One word, liberal. One word, conservative. One word, evangelical. One word, national. One word, black, white, positive, negative, COVID. One word, radical. One word. One word or a combination of words. So that we use the combination as an acronym, one word, has the potential to shift our imagination before we've actually had an encounter. Labels have a way of making us see people in ways we may not otherwise experience them. Labels have a way of causing us to think about people and assign stereotypes that may not even fit. 
So this morning, I will ask you the same thing I ask my students in class, to ignore the headline. I will ask you to ignore this, this subtitle that shows up in many of our Bibles, at least until we've read the text. Jesus comes to the temple early and the people come and gather around. We have come early and gathered around to look at Jesus or at least to hear. What does Jesus have to say to the church? One translation says the people swarmed the temple to be where Jesus was. There's so many people, it's hard to see him, it's hard to hear him. So we sit and listen and our hearts ask, what is the Lord saying to us today? Sometimes Jesus shares in parables. Sometimes Jesus reads from the Hebrew text. Sometimes Jesus addresses a particular question or issue that's happening in our community, and today is no different. We have gathered to hear what is Jesus saying. In my times of ministry, there's one thing, or there's many things, but one of the many things that I've learned is that everyone doesn't come to church for the same reason. Everyone doesn't show up in the temple for the same reason. We can't assume everyone in the crowd was there for the same reason. Some of us become, come because it's expected as a clergy person or as a good United Methodist. This is an expectation that you take part in the life of the church, in, in the community. That's one reason. Some come because they've heard it's a pretty good place to find a good spouse. I don't know if that happens in South Bend. I just know that in my travels, this is one of the reasons people come. Some come because, not because they're looking for Jesus, but because they're looking for Sabrina or Sally or David or Dennis, and they've heard they might be in the church. There are all kinds of reasons people come to church. Some of us come out of tradition. Our parents raised us to go to church. Whether there was meaning in the going or not, we knew that this is what we do. For some of us, it is the center of gravity of our lives to be in the midst of the faith community. Some of us come just out of sheer curiosity. We don't really know what's going to happen, but if something happens, I don't want to miss it. And then there are some of us, we don't really know why we've come. We just know to come. We don't really know why. As I look around today, those who are watching virtually, I don't know why you're here. I don't know why, what your motivation is, but God knows why? Suddenly, as we walk our way through the text, there's an interruption. There is this disturbance. It's as if I can see it out of the corner of my eye. I see Jesus, but I see this disturbance. I really don't want to look away from Jesus, but there's this disturbance that's just happening. I resist 
turning my view because I'm trying to see Jesus, but something else is happening. It's as if there's a parting of the Red Sea, and I see some men, I might see a woman, but I'm really struggling to keep my focus on Jesus, but there's something happening in our midst. And then I see her. I don't want to look at her, but I see her standing between them. It's an odd position, actually, for a woman of the ancient world. I don't see her husband. I don't see her father. I don't see some other male authority figure. It's just the religious leaders. It's just those of the law. And I'm trying not to look at her. The truth is, I don't really see her. I see a shadow. It feels awkward. So I turn my gaze. I'm trying to look at Jesus. But there's something happening in the midst of the community. I'm distracted by this disturbance. I see them looking at Jesus and wanting to know what to do with women like this. They say she was caught in the act. They are demanding a response to the charges against her, but Jesus says nothing. They bring up the law of Moses. I, I remember this law that says that if a man is caught in adultery, he and the woman must be killed. And then I begin to question, well, where is he? Because I see Jesus, and I see them, and I see the shadow of her, but surely if we are to enact the law, he must be somewhere. Where is he? Why has he been granted this invisibility while she is overexposed? Why is he covered and she is uncovered? I want to look at Jesus, but my mind keeps asking, where is he? As we sit in the crowd, I feel the tension rising, this awkwardness, this rising unsettledness about this woman. The scribes and Pharisees want us to be infuriated with her, to be angry, to react with some kind of emotional critique because of the alleged offense. And maybe on the inside we do. Our sympathy is fleeting because of the subject. We have to acknowledge the complicatedness of the one word, adultery. Unfaithfulness is often seen as the ultimate sin, the ultimate betrayal, the one, truthfully, we don't talk about in polite company, if we talk about it at all. It lives in the whispers of private spaces or the confidentiality of counseling sessions or in the broken pieces of dead relationships. It's the architect of tear-stained cheeks 
and hearts reshaped by regretful moments. It causes us discomfort. We don't want to think about this word or any other word for that matter that brings us so close to pain or shame or regret. We don't want to look at this scene. We don't want to look at her. We want to recoil because of this overexposure. But if we replace that one word with the many unmentionables of life, we find ourselves with her. Imagine being paraded in front of Clay Church with whatever is your most personal transgression. Imagine the overexposure of the most hidden places in our lives, the behaviors that we've actually partitioned off from who we are now, our church selves. Imagine the moments of our lives that we pray will never become available for public consumption, being made visible. I can't look at her without looking at myself. I can't see her without seeing myself. And perhaps this is, this is why Jesus says nothing. He kneels, the text says, and just begins to write on the ground. I'm too far away. I want to see what he's writing. Some have postulated what he's writing, but the truth is we don't know what he was writing. He just keeps writing. They keep badgering him. They keep asking him to make a judgment about this woman, and Jesus simply keeps writing. They want to trap him. They want to trip, trick him. They want to discredit him. And it appears to me this actually isn't about the woman. This is about Jesus so they use this woman. They feel threatened by Jesus and intimidated, but they don't go to him, they go through her. Perhaps you've known leaders like this who are threatened by someone who opposes what they believe, those who are insecure those who use status or education or position as an instrument of power to impact their own agenda, those who have a grasp on legalism but no love, those who understand the commandments but they don't know compassion, those who have mastered rules and regulations but have no godly revelation, those who cowardly abuse the weak because they can. In some ancient societies, this was the state of women. Some labeled women as prone to sexual wandering. Some labeled women as needing containment. In modern society, we've 
we've experienced a shift in the treatment of some women, but an ongoing diminishment of others. Unfortunately, this objectification that we see in the text is a practice that endures. As we reflect on the text a little further, I don't want you to think that I'm excusing this alleged infraction. I'm not. But we miss something in the text if we ignore the motives of the inquisition and the inquisitors. We miss something in the text if we look past them and gaze only upon her. We miss something in the text when we ignore our hidden transgressions and highlight hers. And Jesus just keeps writing in the dust. I want him to speak. I want Jesus to do something. I want Jesus to shift our focus. The tension is sort of excruciating. It just keeps writing. Aware of the accusers, aware of the accusation, and aware of the accused. You see, this is the Jesus that we want to encounter and the one that we struggle to emulate, the one who simply waits. Finally, he stands, and instantly the temple is silent. We wait with bated breath as if watching a scene unfold again. We are looking at Jesus, and he says just a few words. The sinless among you. Go ahead. Throw a stone. If there's any among you who have not sinned, go ahead. Throw the stone. And then he continues writing in the dust. We don't know what to make of this moment, but we all see it. We all feel it can't look at her without looking at the mirror of our own lives. To be sure, we want to. We want to feel a little justified, even if we can just say to ourselves, at least I didn't do that. Somehow we might feel better. But notice, Jesus never names a transgression. He simply says, if you've never sinned, go ahead, throw the stone." not all indicted with the same transgressive behaviors, but we are all indicted of the proclivity to walk away from God or the ways of God, to turn our attention from the voice of God. We are prone to sin if we are left to ourselves. It's a hard truth, a truth that's, I think we'd often choose not to face. Yet Jesus cuts through injustice. Jesus cuts through a double standard. Jesus cuts through to the core issue. Left to ourselves. Could be us. So we walk away. The elders walk away. The crowd begins to walk away. I, too, get in the processional line. 
that walks away. It all makes sense now. I see the wisdom of just waiting. I see the wisdom that while the crowd is watching Jesus, is just waiting. He doesn't react to her accusers. He responds as one who knows what it's like to be accused. When we honestly look at ourselves first, we are able to look at others differently. Grace looks different. Mercy looks different. Long-suffering looks different. Forgiveness, kindness, gentleness look different when we look at ourselves first. As we leave, as we begin to leave and conclude our text this morning, I notice the pile of untouched stones. I can't imagine a situation in which any of us could honestly touch the stones, much less throw one. So we walk away empty-handed. Because when we are honest, there are times when we all don't quite get it right. Lent is a season for digging deep, looking deep, looking at the dust, looking at ourselves for acknowledging, I might need to begin again. Jesus gives us the way to see ourselves at resurrection. And we experience this resurrection over and over and over again when we are drawn away from God and then drawn back to God. And we are not there alone. There are the unlikely candidates who are sitting on your pew, who are sitting next to you at home, who are right there too, experiencing resurrection over and over again from this stone, that stone that the builders rejected, that stone that became the chief cornerstone. And finally, as we look back at the text, something amazing happens. Now we see her. Not a form, not a shadow, not a shell, but we see her. Not her sin, not her weakness, not her transgression, but we see her. She probably never imagined when she was brought or led or drug into the temple that day that she would have a personal encounter with the Lord. We don't even know her name, but she gets this personal moment with the Lord. I'm reminded of the story of Joseph. What was meant for evil, God turned for good. God has a way of taking the moments and fragments and seasons of our lives that seem so ragged and directionless and sinful and wasteful and turning it into good. Someone here today may need to hear the words that Jesus says to this woman. Neither do I condemn you. Someone watching may need to hear the words Jesus says. Neither do I 
condemn you. Others may have labeled, others may have judged, others may have, have condemned or alienated, others may have attempted to stone us. But Jesus says today, neither do I condemn you. Here now Jesus meets us with the hope and the promise of resurrection. This is the word of God. This is the word of life. Thanks be to God.